We're continuing our journey uh, with Jesus through the book of John that we started at the beginning of last year, and we're going to go all the way to just past Easter this year before we finish it up. We're not the only church doing this same message series. There's another church that just started services last week in Federal Way, Washington, in between Seattle and Tacoma, the Point Church. That's where I and several other people were last week. And we've got another small team there this week. That's why the flag of Seattle is up here, just to remind us to pray for them and remember them uh, as, as we move forward with them. We're excited that, that there's a new uh, foothold for the gospel in, in a place that where just very few people know Jesus, maybe 5% of the people there. So uh, be praying for them and be praying for our teams as they go over the next several weeks up to uh, Seattle to help out with that. Well, as we're looking at, at following Jesus through the book of John, um, let me just ask you a question today. Um, have you ever found yourself going the wrong way down a one-way street? Anybody besides me? Yeah. yeah it's it's, um, it's uh, disorienting at first. It's like, wait, what? Where, where are cars coming at me on the wrong side of the road? And then it's, it's embarrassing because people are pointing at you sometimes going, hey, you know, waving at you. And, and then it's kind of frightening because, you know, you can easily get in a wreck that way. The good news is it, it's an easy fix if you can just find a driveway to pull into or a, a street to turn down to get around and turn around. And so that's, that's better like that when you, when you figure a way out of a one-way street. Not too big of a problem. But have you ever felt like, have you ever considered that you may be going the wrong way spiritually? You ever thought about that? You might be going the wrong way spiritually, and, and it's, it's confusing, it's disorienting, it can be frightening if you really know what all could happen there. It's kind of like this sign right here. One way. No arrows. Good luck figuring out which one, you know? That would be rough. That would be rough. Okay, who's, who's right on, on this street, you know? Well, the good news is you don't need luck when it comes to going the right way spiritually. There's a path that will keep you going in the right direction every day for the rest of your life, and not only the rest of this life, but into the next life, into heaven. But there's a very important thing to understand about this pathway to heaven and the right way spiritually. There's only one path. The pathway to heaven is a one-way street. That's what John and Jesus tell us today as we follow Jesus through the book of John. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to John chapter 14. Verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can pick one up at the Welcome Center, English or Spanish translation, on your way out. If you're looking for it, if you're using your phone, that's great. Uh, it's on the Bible app. The, the message notes are all on our BPF app. Um, but also, if you're using a, a Bible like this, a physical Bible, John is in the New Testament. And New Testament's the last fourth of the Bible, so flip three-fourths of the way through. When you get to the New Testament, you see the first four books, we call them Gospels. They're good news accounts of Jesus' life his death, his resurrection, his teachings. And uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're looking in the fourth book, John. It was written by one of Jesus' closest disciples, John. So the setting that we've been in the last couple of weeks since we started back here with this message series, finishing up John, in the setting for the next couple of months, it's all the last really day or week, probably day of Jesus' life. He's doing a lot of teaching, and so we're going we're gonna to see him say a lot of things here, last instructions before he leaves them. And so we're taking this just a chunk at a time. We're in John 14 today. So the setting is they have just finished this, what we call communion, the first Lord's Supper. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He is with his 12 closest disciples. We call them apostles. And he's preparing them for his impending death the next day. But more importantly, 
He is preparing them for life after he leaves his earthly body and returns to heaven's glory where he came from originally before he came down to heaven in Bethlehem at Christmas. And also these instructions that he's giving his disciples, they're for us as well and for all the rest of the Christ followers throughout time and around the world. So we're picking it up in John chapter 14, verse one. So his disciples, they're, man, they're just really uneasy. They know something's not right and Jesus is trying to calm them down. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, my Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. These words were meant to reassure his disciples, to comfort them, but it appears it just created more questions, several, you know, three of his disciples asking questions after that because they weren't getting, they weren't picking up what he was putting down. They were thinking, you're leaving us alone? And they're looking at each other, did, did I miss something? Where's this house he's talking about? And when did he tell us where he was going? Thomas, one of the 12, was the first to speak up, verse five. He said, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This created even more questions. Philip was the next to speak up. We'll come back to him and his question. Let's unpack the first couple of verses. Jesus began by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be disturbed. You believe in God, believe also in me. There was reason for them to be troubled, for them, their hearts to be troubled. If you've been here the past few weeks, you remember Jesus had just told his disciples three things. He said one of them would betray him, didn't say which one. And then he said another, Peter, he threw Peter under the bus. He said, Peter, his most passionate, his most passionate outspoken follower, he said, you'll deny me before the sun comes up tomorrow morning. You'll deny even knowing me. You'll do it three times. And he told them he was going where none of them could follow. So what were they to do with that? That was more confusing. Pretty simply said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, believe in me. You believe in God, believe in me. He kept saying, you believed in me. Now keep believing, keep trusting, keep relying on me. And that's a word for us because every one of us comes to times when our hearts are troubled, when we really don't know what to do or we're so confused, we don't know the next step. And what he's saying to us is when you are worried, turn to Jesus and trust him, trust him. And as I was looking at that, I immediately thought of a hymn I heard as a kid growing up called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it says, oh, what, oh, what, uh, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything, everything to God in prayer. That's the solution, folks. When you're worried, you pray to God. You pray and ask him. I need help. I don't understand. I'm, not, I'm, I'm just stalled out right here. I'm stuck or I'm frightened. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He will meet you where you are. Jesus told them, believe in me. Believe in me. Then over the next few minutes, he makes three promises to them. We're going to look at two of those today. The first promise is Jesus promised a place called heaven. I, I, I've read this promise from John's gospel many times at funerals because it is so comforting. 
It's so comforting because death is something that, that many people, especially people who don't know Jesus Christ, it's something they fear. Aristotle called death the thing to be feared the most because it appears to be the end of all things. Other philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre said equally bleak things as well. But I like what Max Lucado, a pastor in San Antonio, said. He said, suppose death is different than all these great philosophers have thought. Less a, a curse and more a passageway. Not a crisis to be avoided, but a corner to be turned. What if it's not near as bad as what we think it is? This is what Jesus was explaining to his disciples that night before his death. He promised them that he would prepare a place for them in heaven after they died. And that promise is for us as well. If they believed in him, if we believe in him, and don't miss that part, heaven is not for everyone. Everyone's not going to heaven. After this life, it's heaven or hell, no place in between. It's if you believe in him, heaven is for those who trust him. And here's the place, verse two. He said, he described it. He said, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the place. You know the way to the place where I am going. I grew up in a time when most churches used a 400-year-old translation of the Bible called the King James Version. We affectionately refer to it as the King Jimmy Version. And the King James Version, it was, it was one of the only translations we had at the time. And I remember when we got to this point in John 14, the King James Version said, in my father's house are many mansions. And so we grew up with this idea that everybody gets a mansion in heaven. On Sunday mornings when they would preach about John 14 and in my father's house are many mansions, it was like Oprah Winfrey's giveaway day on her show where she goes, you get a car, you get a car, that lady gets a car. Everybody in the room goes home with a car today except the preacher would be saying, you get a mansion, you get a mansion. Everybody here gets a mansion. There were songs like, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright plant land where we'll never grow old. Anybody know that song? Anybody ever heard that song? A few of y'all. Okay, all right. It was happy. There were happy songs like that, you know? But I always wondered, though, how do you fit a mansion inside a house? In my father's house are many mansions. It, it just did not make sense to me. But then I figured out what it means here, okay? You see, the Greek word monet, uh, John wrote his gospel. All the, all the New Testament Bible writers wrote their, their, their letters and the books in Greek language because just as English is the most common language around the world today, all pilots around the world have to speak English. Well, in that day, Greek was the most common language in there, and so they wrote everything in Greek. And so in Greek, the word monet, which means room or abode, was translated mansion in the King James Version in 1611 when they translated that. But here's the reason why. Mansion, 400 years ago, meant a modest dwelling or a room. So King James was a correct translation. It was very correct until language changed and the meaning of the word mansion changed. We don't have the same old English words now. Mansion means something very different now. The meaning of words are always changing. Let me give you some examples, okay? Things that have changed in, in most of our lifetimes, okay? <clears throat> in the 20th century, if you said the church blew up, it could just mean a couple of things. It could mean there was a gas leak and the building exploded. It blew up, okay? Or it could mean 
People got cross with each other. They had a fight. It blew up in a fight and people left. That's what it would mean if, what it meant in the 20th century. In the 21st century now, if you say that church blew up, that means, man, it grew really fast. It's awesome. And so we're hoping our church up in Seattle just blows up, you know. Don't think it will. Most churches don't up there, but it, it could, okay? Here's another example, and here's my best impersonation of Nick Gonzalez, our student ministry association. Man, the high school retreat speaker next week is sick. Now, in the 20th century, that would mean we'd say, what, what does he have the flu or COVID? I mean, what's, what's going on with the guy? But, but in the 21st century, what that means is he's really good. Yeah, I can just see Nick saying that. Matter of fact, I asked him to say it so I could get him down and imitate him. Well, back to in my father's house are many mansions. The better understanding, better translation is what we have now. It's, it's that Jesus, what it's trying to say is it's a lot of rooms. So it actually, the house, the father's house is more like a mansion. It's a big house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. I want you to see a more theologically accurate depiction of heaven, okay? Just watch this. Okay, all you Gen Xers who grew up in the 90s with contemporary Christian music's heyday, you're welcome for that nostalgic blast of the past. How many of y'all knew that song? Oh, yeah, a bunch of you did. I saw somebody, somebody doing the motions, you know, we can play football. Here's the point that that song was trying to make, and really all the songs we sing about heaven, but they, they were really trying to drive home to, a, to another generation, is that heaven is a real place. It's a real place that we'll be at. We can touch it. It's not just some kind of imaginary place in the clouds. We'll be floating around wearing white robes and playing harps. As my mentor Rick Warren said, that would be hell to me. No, it's going to be a real place that we can go. I think we'll eat there. We'll do things. Maybe we'll play football. I hope we'll play baseball. You know, but heaven, heaven is a real place. It's not, it's not a figment of your imagination. It's not like some hollow tree where the Keebler elves are baking cookies. It's not a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. It is a real place that God created us to live with him forever. Heaven is also, I believe, that longing in your soul for something more that you just can't 
get here. It's that place you want to go when life hits you hard or you're confused or maybe your heart has been broken and you just don't have much, you just don't feel much reason to live. Heaven is that longing in your heart. Heaven is a place that God has prepared for you. It's a place that he's prepared for all of us if we just believe in him and trust him. C.S. Lewis, the, the great philosopher of the 20th century, in his book, Mere Christianity, he described the attraction that we have to heaven. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. Folks, we were. We were created not for time but for eternity and not just for this earth. But everything on this earth is just, a, it's just an indication of something much greater. There's a desire in all of us that earth cannot fulfill. God has planted something within our hearts for something more, something greater. The Apostle Paul described it this way. In a letter, Apostle Paul was one of the early uh, church missionaries and evangelists, and he helped spread the gospel across Asia and Europe. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to the first church he planted in Europe, which was in Philippi, Greece. And he told them, he said, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. Our citizenship as Christ followers is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his heavenly body. We don't just get a mansion. We get a new body in heaven. It won't ache. It won't, the bones won't break. It's going to be great. We won't have cancer, diabetes. We won't, we'll be in a glorified body, and everything will be well forever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. Jesus told them that just to, so their hearts wouldn't be troubled, to give them something to look for, and it's for us too to be able to look forward to, to long for. And I think the older you get and the more people that you love that are going to heaven, the more you're going to have a desire to be there with them and with Jesus. So Jesus told his disciples, he said, you know the way where I'm going. They did, but they didn't. They didn't quite understand. He said, you know the way where I'm going. And that's when Thomas asked, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Then Jesus made a second promise. Not only did he promise a place, a real place called heaven, but he also promised a path to heaven, a very clear way. It's not always the easy way, but it is a very clear way to heaven. This is the path I spoke about earlier, the one-way street that will keep you going in the right direction every day for the rest of your life if you stay on this path. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus doesn't show us the way to the Father in heaven. Jesus doesn't point the way to heaven. He is the way. Jesus himself is the way. He's the path. That's what we talk about being Christ followers. Because to be a Christian means to be a Christ follower. It means to be following Jesus daily. Each day, you get a little closer to Jesus. Each day, you get a little closer to understanding the way, the truth, and the life. And someday, we step over that line into heaven when our bodies die and our souls go to heaven, and someday he will reunite our bodies with him in heaven. That's why we talk about being Christ followers. If you want to go to heaven, you follow Jesus, and only Jesus. He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let me just let you know, there's a false belief in our culture sometimes even embraced by people who call themselves Christians. They go something like this. 
All paths lead to heaven. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they all lead to heaven. You know, just as, you know, it doesn't matter which one you're on, as long as you're sincere. That's a really dangerously false hope. It's wrong. It is wrong. That's like saying, as long as you're sincere, that's like saying it doesn't matter which way you go down a one-way street, as long as you're sincere. You can be in a sincere wreck that hurts badly. The consequences are so much worse if you're on the wrong path spiritually. You know, people have all kinds of ideas and, and say all things about Jesus and all. They just aren't true. If you have a problem with, with this, it, your problem is with Jesus, not me. Jesus is the one who said, I am the only way. Amen. You know, the, the difference between Christianity and all other religions, everyone, you name it, is religion is what man does to try to figure out a way to get to God, to please God, to, to cover over our sins, to take care of that. Every one of them say, do this, do this, do this. And even a lot of, of misunderstandings of Christianity get us into this thing of do this and do this. But the thing about Christianity is the word that describes is not do, but done, done. It, we sang the song, it is finished. Jesus finished the work for us when he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And then his life is now the pathway for us if we follow him. Here's the basic truth of Christianity. Christianity is exclusive. It's exclusive. There's no other way. And like I said, if you want to dispute that, take it up with Jesus. He's the one who said that. Christianity is exclusive, but not in who it allows in. Everyone is allowed into heaven. Everybody does get to go to heaven. But the pathway is through Jesus and Jesus alone. We follow him. He is the way, not a way. He's the only way. Philip was still confused and he didn't understand. The reason he was confused is he didn't yet understand that Jesus would go and die the next day on a cross and that he would pay the penalty for all of our sin and that God would forgive us based on Jesus's sacrifice if we just believe in him and follow him. He couldn't know that, he couldn't understand that. And that's why when Jesus said, you know the way where I'm going, Philip said, verse eight, he said, Lord, show us the Father and, and, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, they've been together 24 seven for three years. As a matter of fact, Philip was the first follower of Jesus. He was the first one Jesus said, come, follow me. And Philip followed and yet Philip didn't understand what was going on. And that's understandable. He, hadn't, he didn't, hadn't experienced Easter. He hadn't experienced Jesus dying and being raised from the dead. Jesus went on to say to Philip, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? Jesus had told them that before. They just didn't get it. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the work themselves. Philip had seen and the rest of the disciples had seen Jesus do incredibly mighty miracles, including raising people from the dead. In short, Jesus is saying that the Father and I are the same. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And this is, this is beginning, we're beginning to get the understanding. John's given us the understanding of the Trinity. We'll see the rest of it played out in the rest of this chapter. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, but one God. It's hard to explain, but that's what the Bible tells us. The Father and Son, we've, you know, Jesus is the, the perfect embodiment of the Father. 
He's saying the Father and I are the same. So belief in Jesus is belief in God. If you don't believe in Jesus, you really don't believe in God. He goes on to say what they can expect to happen if they really believe this. And now he's not so much talking about heaven. He's talking about what their lives would be like and what they have to look forward to here on earth. And the same thing for us. Verse 12, he said, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Wow, that's a couple of big promises. Greater things, whatever we ask, he'll do. I could spend a lot of time here. But I'll just tap the brakes to explain two things here that are easily misunderstood before wrapping this up. First, what did Jesus mean when he said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater works than these. More spectacular? What is more spectacular than raising one of your good friends back to life after he's been dead for four days in the grave? What's more spectacular than that? Nothing, we can't top that. He's not saying you'll be able to say, oh, Top this. That's not what he means. What does greater mean? What could be greater than that? Well, here's how one commentator that I trust puts it. I think he describes it well. He said, the works the disciples would do were not more spectacular, but greater in extent or greater in volume. It's like greater geographically, greater ethnically, greater numerically. Think about this. Jesus never left Israel when he was, when he was on earth. Well, that's not true. When he was a child, they were basically refugees, political refugees, and they went to Egypt. But once he started his ministry, he stayed right around in about a 45-mile radius in Israel. But so Jesus spoke to people in a small, tight area geographically. But his disciples carried the gospel to Africa, to Asia, and to Europe, greater geographically. Jesus primarily dealt with Jews. That's where he started with it. And there's, there's a lot of theological reasons for that we've talked about before. We'll talk about it again someday. Jesus did speak at times to Gentiles and led Gentiles to faith in him. But for the most part, Jesus limited his ministry to Jews. The apostles, they went to Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles would be anybody besides a Jew. And so it was greater ethnically and greater numerically. At the end of Jesus' ministry, only a few dozen people were true believers in Jesus. And yet a few weeks after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostle Peter, the one who denied knowing Jesus the night of his betrayal. Peter, seeing a resurrected Jesus, had new life in him. And Peter preached to a large crowd on a day we call the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people became Christ followers that day. Greater works than these? Greater geographically, greater ethnically, greater numerically. That's probably what Jesus meant by greater, greater in extent. But the other thing he said, this is the one that's really tempting, um, what did Jesus mean by praying in his name? You may ask me for anything in my name and I will give it. What, what does that mean? I mean, at face value, again, I'm thinking, man, that sounds really good, okay? But Jesus' name is not a magic word. It's not like a genie in a lamp. You don't say it in, at the end of a prayer to get what you want. You know, you don't say it like, dear Jesus, please give me a 2023 BMW M. 850 today, in Jesus' name, amen. Keys, it's not gonna work 
because that's not what he meant. And it's pretty clear if you really look at it, and if you follow Jesus through the book of John and follow Jesus through the gospels, that's not what he meant. See, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray in line with his will. You don't have to say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, but it's good because it reminds us. It, keeps, it reminds us of our motives. It's why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray this way to the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying, with, praying with, in line with Jesus' name keeps our motives pure. And there's power in the name. Don't end your prayer saying, in your name, amen. Say it, your name, Jesus, in Jesus' name. To sum it all up, what I really want you to take away from John chapter 14 today is here's the path to God, okay? You don't have to rely on yourself or your best efforts to make it to God, to please God, to get to heaven. You can't. Your best efforts will still fall far short, but you don't have to because Jesus is the way. You don't have to live with uncertainty because Jesus is the truth. And the thing that happens when you step over the line of faith, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. We'll talk more about that. In, in the rest of John 14. But you begin to understand reality. You begin to see things as they really are. You see the truth. You don't have to live with uncertainty. And folks, you don't have to fear death because he is the life. Jesus promised a real place called heaven, a place that our hearts long for but we can't yet reach. And he's promised a path to get there. Him, believe in Jesus. I just want to ask, do you believe this? Is God open to your heart to believe and understand that Jesus is his son, that Jesus is the only way? And if you really want to follow Jesus, if you want to know the way, if you want to understand truth, and if you want to have real life, do you believe? Some of you have just been coming. You're just hearing this stuff. and Some sounds good. You take a little of this, leave a little of that. That's not how it works. You take all of Jesus and you say, I'm all in. If you're ready to do that and you haven't done that yet, we call that stepping over the line of faith. If you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, I can help you begin that pathway with a simple prayer. So I'd like to ask all of you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment while I pray, okay? Just pray simply like this. Say, Jesus, I want to be on the right path. I want to know the way. I want to understand truth and I want to have your life. Thank you for dying a sacrificial death for me. Please forgive my sin. Well, come into my life. Take control. Help me to know the path that I, I need to be on. Show me how to follow you. I ask it in Jesus' name.